Well, good morning. It's uh, such a joy for me to be with you. Again, I do think it's been four or five years since I've been here. This is uh, a special privilege and joy for me. I uh, want to thank you for the partner and friend you've been to me, to my wife Jenny, to our family, to our church in the gospel. I give praise to God for you. Um, Aaron has been my friend, and, and in so many ways, he has pastored my soul quite a number of times. And I'm so thankful for what the Lord's doing in you as a church and how the Lord is using you. And of course, now Jesse and Delane have come to the UAE, and it's amazing to see the reach that the Lord is giving you as a church. Thank you for the ways that you've loved me so tangibly. Now, we've been there for eight and a half years. And there's been joys and there's been sorrows and trials, but the Lord has been faithful to us in the United Arab Emirates. And I give praise to God for that. It's a great privilege to be here with you, to serve you in the word of the Lord this morning. If I could just lead us in prayer before we go to God's word. Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning that you would open our eyes to see, to hear, and to respond in faith. We pray that you would give us help for your glory and for the praise and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for your help by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the term mission creep? Mission creep. It's often a term that's used in the midst of of long wars, when there's a, a gradual shift in the objectives or the goals for which the war began. It began for one reason, for another reason or another, the mission has changed course. Perhaps the nation fighting has become distracted from the original objective. Of course, this isn't just with armies or, or militaries. This can happen with organizations and with institutions at some point. They find themselves trying to be more than what they meant to be. And so they begin asking themselves, have we veered away from our original objective? Have we tried to take on too much? Have we somehow compromised what we set out to be in the beginning? Of course, one of the battles for any organization is that there's a number of good things they possibly could do, but when it comes to defining mission, it's best, it's necessary to ask what must we do. This morning, we want to think about mission and mission creep in relation to the church. And we want to do so by looking at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Uh, These verses make up the main point, the entire reason that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Paul planted this church in Ephesus. He planted it during his third missionary journey. Paul is now gone. Timothy is left behind to be the representative of Paul to pastor the church. And the church at Ephesus was under threat. And so Paul gives Timothy this letter to give him instructions so he will understand how life is to be lived in the church, the church that must stay faithful to her mission. 
Let's look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Brothers and sisters, I pray this morning, even as you're in some sense starting a new season in the life of of this church, that your eyes might be readjusted, might see afresh the glory and the primacy of the church. Here's Paul's main point that we should get this morning. God's household, the church, is God's primary means to make his name known in the world. And the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. God's household, the church, is God's primary means to make his name known in the world and her foundation is Jesus Christ. We'll begin this morning by looking at the household of God, verses 14 to 15. The household of God. That's the first point if you're taking notes. Here Paul is not with Timothy, but he hopes to come to him soon. This letter was most likely written not long before Paul's long or his second imprisonment in Rome that led to his death. So because he's absent, Paul is telling Timothy explicitly, verse 14, why he's writing these things to him. Now, the these things that he is writing is what Paul addresses in the rest of this book. False teaching, church government, leadership, faithful prayer, faithful worship. What's the reason, what's the purpose for Paul writing all of 1 Timothy, verse 15? that we might know how we ought to behave in God's household, the church of the living God. Now, this is not just advice. This is command. Household was then. It is now the basic unit in society. It's the basic realm in which we live out our lives. And Paul writes, not concerned for any household, but for the household, the household of God. And this household is not just any other human organization or institution. This is the one organization on the planet that God himself has purchased by the blood of his son. The one household brought into being through the power of the resurrection of the dead, it is the household among which Jesus Christ himself is pleased to dwell. The household of God is the church. And so Paul not only takes life in the church seriously, he takes our behavior, organization seriously. When I was growing up, it was not unusual to find a picture on the wall in the kitchen of houses that said, these are the rules for mama's kitchen. Now I have no doubt, being here in the South, 
some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And let me just say it is wonderful to be somewhere where when I say the South, you know that that refers to the Southern United States. Nowhere else in the world. These pictures would say things like, if you cook it, if I cook it, you eat it. Or your choices for dinner are take it or leave it. Eat or go hungry. Any of you have this hanging in your kitchen? You should. <laughs> What's the point? It's mama's kitchen. And what mama says in her kitchen goes. If for mama, how much more the church, God's household, the very people, the very organization for whom Jesus Christ has died. Paul means for us to see we're not simply free to do what we want with the church. We did not invent, come up with this precious institution. No, our life together must honor and glorify the one who has bought us with his blood. He gave his life for us. He gets to tell us how our life should be ordered together, how we ought to behave in this household. So think of this conducting yourself as meaning your manner of life in the church matters. How you treat the church, how you relate to the church matters. Paul has covered these things in the preceding chapters, beginning with true and false doctrine, the church's worship and prayer, the qualifications just before that, this of those who are to lead in the church. And what's important to understand as well is that this letter was written in a missionary context. Here's the church breaking new ground in the world, going into new settings, and Paul takes the life, the structure, the order of the church so seriously that he takes time to give instruction on all of these things. So when you think about your church life here, but also in missions, realize that Paul does not see the, these things as a silly or abstract argument that some Christians get into that others don't have to worry about. Paul knows that the strength the health of the church is directly connected to the witness of the gospel. So our thinking about the church, about her mission, must be built on the authority of the scriptures, not our own creativity. This letter, in one sense, serves as a, uh, a warning against pragmatism in the church. Now, what is pragmatism? It's a way of defining truth, and practice based on what works rather than what is right. So because something appears to be working, we do it based on the perceived results rather than considering whether what we're doing is right. And there's been many things in history, in church history, that have appeared to work to human reason but have not been right. Churches and even missionaries have employed strategies to draw crowds or to raise their numbers, which are obviously fine things to pray for and to desire, but in so doing, they've undermined the gospel. Or at worst, they've preached a, a different or a watered-down gospel. So churches, in their right desire, very right desire, 
to see more people consider the Christian faith have wrongly lessened the claims of Christ. And this is how a place or church where the gospel once broke out in power slowly creeps into becoming a place where the expression of Christianity is nominal. It's not real. It's a Christianity in name only. It's churches with beautiful buildings, but empty inside. You can read about the the powerful way that God worked through Paul and others to birth this particular church in Ephesus in Acts 19. And what is interesting is only a few years removed from that, Paul has to instruct Timothy in how to defend the faith because of the threat of false teaching from within. The faith that births the church is the faith that must be fought for, it must be contended for, because as long as the church is in this fallen world, God's household faces threats from within and from without, and pragmatism is one such threat. It appeals to us initially, but its effects long-term are disastrous. Let this awaken you afresh to see the glory of the church. Life together in the household of God, the living God. The church is the ecclesia, it is the assembly. That term has its roots in the old covenant. God had a specific identifiable assembly. It was an assembly of people in Israel. And now it's the church. My prayer would be that you would not let what is familiar to you become unremarkable to you. God's household is the church. And Paul describes the church uniquely in this way as the pillar and buttress of the truth. And institutions in our world, some of them really bad, the mafia, gangs, Many of them good, doing so many good things. Only one organization, chartered, commanded by God to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, the church. So what is the fundamental, what is the basic business of the church? It's the truth. To proclaim the truth, to guard the truth, to hold out to this world that in all of its wickedness opposes the truth, to hold that out through proclamation and through our life together to credibly demonstrate this truth. The world will applaud the church for so many things, but the church must never be diverted from this fundamental mission of truth proclamation and truth display. Anything other than that, less than that, that subverts that mission, is mission creep. And the truth that we proclaim to the world is received truth. It is truth that God has revealed to us, has graciously given to us. It is truth we must guard to make known. Notice Paul is using architectural imagery to convey this. A pillar supports the structure. Such a plain job absolutely vital. You take away the pillar, the structure falls. 
The church upholds the truth that God has given to it. And the buttress is the foundation. It's the reinforcement of the truth. Again, it sounds so plain. And yet if we just take a quick glance at the church in so many places today or in church history, it proves the church easily fails in her mission. Mission creep easily can set in. God means for his church, wherever she finds herself in the world, to protect and to display the truth. God means for the church to hold out truth that will protect souls from eternal error, even if that work is ignored or not appreciated. This church, every local church, has this weighty calling and stewardship of making truth known to the world. Well, what does this mean? Well, obviously, it means that the authority for our life together in the church comes from the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures that protect us from false teaching, that protect us from false worship, that protect us from false gods. All of those threatened this church in this letter. The unique role of the church means that those who lead her Those who stand before her and teach must be able to rightly handle the word of truth. Paul takes our life together in the church seriously because it is the church alone that is the pillar and the buttress of truth in the world. What a privilege it is. God has not just saved each of us individually, but saved us into this household together. So let me ask you, as this church begins somewhat of a new season together, How high of a priority is this household to you in your life? Has the priority of the church maybe lessened in your own heart as the years have gone by? How are you laboring to strengthen this expression of God's household? How could you do that in the weeks and years to come? Do you you see how high that God and here prioritizes this household. The the church is meant to be priority in our lives, not just a nice thing that we have. Priority. Why? That's the place it holds in Scripture. It is the household into which God brings us when he unites us to his son. How many of you uh, enjoy family dinner? The whole family gets together. I want you to consider how you would react or maybe how your parents would react if you or another member of the family simply decided you were going to stay away from family dinner because you kind of have this relationship with your dad on your own. It's just a me and my dad kind of relationship. What does your father want? He wants all the children together. He wants the family table to be full. He wants you to be there loving the whole family. And as it is so obvious to us with any earthly father, so with our heavenly father. Love God's household because God loves his whole household, even the strange uncles. He wants us to relate to each other in a way that shows off his love to us. Individually, together, in a family. There is no healthy, 
There's no good household in the world in which it can be said that some of the members of this household don't matter. It's fine. We don't know how they're doing, what they're up to. No, a healthy household loves and cares for each of its own. Truth in the household is protected and held out for the sake of real people with real eternal destinies. God's household, no matter how impressive she looks to us or not, always matter. Wherever she is in the world, she matters. And her life together is either faithfully or unfaithfully telling the world about the God whom she has been sent to proclaim. This is how the church makes God glory, glorified and fulfills her calling. We know that God's eye is on the whole world. We also know his eye is particularly on the church, bought by the blood of the Son. Our life together in the church has been given to us by God. So prize God's household and prioritize God's household. Another implication of this, the church being the pillar and the buttress of the truth, is that the church must teach the truth. So teaching and preaching are at the center of what the church does. Literally, the the first and the last items that Paul addresses in this letter is false teaching. It was a threat then. Is it not a threat now? The church must guard the teaching. As we've lived overseas for some time now, I, I can sadly say that even in some missions philosophies, teaching has been set aside or it is downplayed in its importance. Paul never instructed Timothy in this way. He commands Timothy, preach the word. He says to Titus to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. For the church to be the pillar of the truth in the world, truth must be taught and defended. If any of us have grown as Christians, the Lord has used many different people, many different ways to bring that about, but surely we can think of people the Lord has used in our lives to teach us to instruct us. The church is in the truth-telling, truth-protecting business. Final implication here of what Paul teaches is planting more churches. This has been our partnership in the gospel. If the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, we want to see more of these emerge in the world. That's how the gospel advances. So by the time Paul writes this letter, he has planted churches all over the ancient world. And this tells us why. He saw planting churches as central to making the gospel known. Because every Bible proclaiming, every Christ exalting, Every gospel-saturated church, no matter how big or small, is a pillar of the truth. That's why you partnered with me. That's why you partner with many others. Because you love the truth. And you want to see the truth made known. You want to see it proclaimed and displayed in more places. It's why our family moved to 
Ross Alkaima, that's why Jesse and Delane have gone to Fujairah to plant a church, to see the church emerge. It's why we and our church invest in young men from the gospel-starved region in which we live because we want to see more young men pastor, plant churches. Why? And what Christ exalted for the joy of all peoples. Friends, the living God owns this household as his household. Remarkable in Ephesus, there were other gods that were revered and worshiped, but that's not where God dwelled. Robert Yarborough points out it's striking that Paul would view the presence of at most just a few hundred believers at Ephesus as a locus of the presence of the living God in a Roman world. And yet that's the way it's always been for God's people. A minority in the world, outnumbered, and yet confident because of the God of our household, whom we worship and trust by faith. We are those confident that our God is alive. He's present with us. He dwells among us in our community, and our life together reflects the power of that reality. In the presence of our God, for the glory of His Son, we are to proclaim and live out the truth. God's household, the church, is always in the business of making the truth known. So this is why all of 1 Timothy is written, that we might know how to behave in this household, what this household is to be, because the church is both a priority in the life of a Christian and the church is God's priority in making his name known to the world, the household of God. And it's right and fitting that we turn next to the God of the household. Verse 6, 16, the God of the household. So Paul moves from speaking about the church, now to verse 16, to speaking about godliness. What's the connection? Well, it, it all lies in the glorious truth that Paul is revealing. Look at, look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, I want to hone in on those two words, mystery and godliness. In this letter, the word godliness plays a prominent role. Paul uses the word eight times in this letter. That's more than any other New Testament letter. It's actually about half of the times that the word is used in the entire New Testament. Godliness is an interesting word. When I was growing up, I would associate godliness with, with older people who were often quiet, who seemed to have no interest in sports or music or anything that I thought was fun or interesting. I simply thought they were godly, and I, I wondered how they got to this point where they weren't interested in anything that I thought was incredible in the world. I hope you know that that way of thinking about godliness is completely wrong. I assume when you think of this word, you, maybe you think of someone who has or, or is doing great things for God, maybe someone you look up to in your own life. A pastor recently asked a question about this word. I, I want to ask you, what is the opposite 
of godliness. What's the opposite of godly? My guess is you're tempted to say ungodly. Don't say that out loud. The opposite is godless. Godless. Too often when we think of this word godly, we think in terms of good or bad. But notice what Paul is doing here. He's making clear that godliness is a person. It's Christ. One writer says the highest of the Christological moments in this letter is found in this verse. In Christ, the key to the strength and flourishing of this community. It's Christ and his work that Paul is going to go on and describe in this poem that follows this verse. It's that form of godliness, but denying its power that Paul warns Timothy against in his second letter. And the form without the power is a form without Christ. Christ is godliness. So godless teaching is teaching that is devoid of Christ, teaching that distorts the truth about Christ. And once you put your trust in Christ alone, you are in the truest sense godly because you're united by faith to the one who's fully God and fully man, fully qualified to stand as your representative before God in heaven. In conversion, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. You are in Christ. It's at that point you can grow in godliness. Paul says in this same letter, physical training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. Holding promise for this life and the life to come. So godliness is not just eternally valuable in your justification, when you're united to Christ, declared to be holy, declared godly, but then in your sanctification, as you grow in godliness, as you are conformed more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. So godliness is, in a real sense, living out life in the knowledge of God how we need more knowledge of God, how we need to live out that knowledge in our lives. But notice it begins with Christ and it continues with Christ. We never venture beyond Christ. We grow in Christ. Christ gets bigger and bigger, the cross more precious and precious. You want to know how you're doing and progressing in godliness? Ask yourself how much you enjoy or treasure Christ. Don't look at the list of things necessarily that you're doing. Is Christ becoming greater to you? Or is he boring or irrelevant? Do you have affections, love for Christ? I mean, that's how you can discern if you're a Christian. Godliness begins and it ends with Christ. Christ is not just for salvation. He's for your sanctification, your growth and your progress, your joy in the faith. But it's not just godliness that is great. It's the mystery of godliness. Just as with the word godliness, so with the word mystery, many things come to mind. When we hear that word, I 
I both loved and feared a show called Unsolved Mysteries when I was growing up, popular because of unsolved crimes in the world, mystery novels, mystery games, mystery plots. The whole thing doesn't unravel until the mystery is solved. When Paul uses this word mystery, he refers to something that was once hidden but is now revealed. So its solution does not depend on us solving it, figuring it out. It depends on God revealing it. It was to this same church, the church at Ephesus, that Paul wrote, the mystery revealed is that in the gospel, Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, along with the Jews. So this wasn't something that human beings figured out, something the prophets anticipated, but it was ultimately something God revealed. Gentile and Jew would stand alike together on equal footing in Christ, brought together in the same family, the same household in Christ Jesus. So mystery is like a secret, once hidden, but now made plain. And Paul here reveals to us what the mystery of godliness is. And again, what is it? It's Christ. Now before we just rush on past that, I want you to consider how glorious it is that this is what godliness is. This is the mystery. It's not you doing stuff. It's not a path that you have to follow, that you have to try to keep. I just flew here from the United Arab Emirates, as you know, and I've left a world emerged in Ramadan. Totally normal there. My neighbors are fasting. The mosques are especially full. It's a very different month in which to live. And in the next two weeks, over the next two weeks, the fasting and the prayers will be especially intense because the last 10 days of, of Ramadan, any faithful Muslim believes, are the days for prayers for liberation or emancipation from the coming fire of judgment. Can you imagine? being so confident that that's what those prayers will achieve, that you live in a world where godliness is a path by which you earn that, not a gift you receive. That eternity is staked on that. And Paul says the mystery of godliness revealed is Christ Jesus who came to save sinners. That godliness is not a path. Godliness is not a thing. Godliness is a person. Friends, God has opened up for us a radically new way of living in the world. We can live our lives hidden away in Christ. We can live our lives united to Christ, confident that in Christ our lives are remarkably going to be vindicated before the world and angels on the last day. Christ Jesus alone, whose life and his death and his resurrection has one godliness for all who would trust in him. Can you grow in godliness? Yes. Paul urges that elsewhere, and that is expected to happen of every true Christian. But I want to be clear, it, it must be said Every single true Christian is godly, a saint. Every true Christian is, is holy and as much converted as any other Christian. 
Puritan Thomas Brooks said this so well. The weakest Christian is as much justified, as much pardoned, as much adopted, adopted, as much united to Christ as the strongest Christian. Is as much interest in Christ as the highest and noblest Christian. The least spark of grace shall be turned into a crown of glory. The secret hidden, now revealed, is Christ. The path to godliness goes through a person, Christ, by faith. So what we see here, what's revealed here, is great. Truly great. Not just that meal was great. This is world-altering, destiny-shifting kind of great. In Ephesus, you can read about this in Acts, of course, when the gospel first went forward. What did the, the crowd do? They rioted against the apostle Paul. Almost cost him his life. Do you remember what they chanted over and over again that Luke tells us? In Acts, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can't you just hear that playing in the back of Paul's mind as he tells Timothy what is truly great? Great is the mystery of godliness. We live in a world of great powers, of make America great again, great idols. This is lasting greatness. This is true greatness. Christ Christ. We know this is about Christ because Paul doesn't describe it as a thing but a person. He says of Christ, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Christ was manifested in the flesh, begins with his humanity, but that word manifested points to his preexistence. In church history, the most foundational divides have been over the person and work of Christ. Now, in our day, the, 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 the greater arguments are over his divinity. But in the early church, they would fight over his humanity, his real humanity. Not just that he appeared to be human or he was some kind of split between divine and human, but here was a man actually human, just as he was actually and fully God. Oh, the preciousness of the humanity of Christ. He became like us, that he might be able to represent us, that he knows, our Savior knows deeply what life is like in the flesh. And the mystery revealed is that God the Son became incarnate, and he takes on flesh that he might redeem fallen humanity. And so the fact that he appeared in the flesh gives weight and meaning to our life in the flesh. It demonstrates how much our lives in this flesh matter. How you're spending your life matters to God. So much so that the one who is infinite in glory joined himself to human flesh to redeem sinful human beings who have been ruled by the passions of the flesh. We as a race were meant for glory Through sin, we've fallen short of that glory, and Christ comes to restore those who would trust him to glory. And so our lives are opened up to be used for God's glorious purposes in the world, manifested in the flesh, but he was also vindicated by the Spirit. That's the contrast, flesh and Spirit. This is teaching Christ was raised from the dead, that death was not the final word on Christ. 
the guilt and shame of sin and the cross were not the final word on Christ. The Spirit vindicated Christ by raising him. And he is, as Paul writes to the Romans, Son of God in power. So remarkably, the destiny that awaited every human being could not keep Christ. He was raised, and the pattern for him is is our pattern. Suffering precedes glory. That's the mystery revealed. Through Christ, death is leading us to life and to victory. And it assures us that there's a new realm, there's a new mode of existence awaiting us. In Christ, mysteries are being revealed. And he was seen by angels, both in his incarnation and in his ascension. He enters into heaven as the God-man who will lead a new humanity into the new world. And angels long to look into this mystery. They knew and they could see and perceive in remarkable ways the glory that the baby in the manger was the second person of the Trinity who came to save sinners. It's not as if the angels have the same knowledge as our triune God. They were astonished by the incarnation. They were astonished by the resurrection and Christ's ascension. And what was unseen by man was seen by the angels as he ascended into heaven as the God-man who had broken the power and the curse of sin in the world and now represented a people before the throne. And he was proclaimed among the nations. Now notice the logic that Paul has here. That when we have a high view, a right view of Christ, it will lead to the proclamation of Christ to the world. Philip Towner writes, Christology develops naturally into missiology. This is what Paul had given his life to. This is what Timothy had joined Paul in. This, This is what took place as the gospel went forward into the world after Christ ascended to the throne in heaven. This is the great work we're striving in together proclaiming Christ for the joy of all peoples. But he wasn't just proclaimed, he was believed on in the world. Fallen humanity in desperate need of Christ. Isn't it so encouraging? In this world, in these days, Christ will not fail in his mission. Christ will receive the reward of his suffering. Oh, do you you, you know the opposition that Paul faced in his life. And yet Paul knew firsthand, as he sat in a prison cell, how many had believed on Christ. Christ comes into the world, a world desperately in need of his great salvation. How much more must we, if our own Savior acted in this way toward the world, must we be faithful in bearing witness to him, in making him known? Now just consider how much the world changed after the person and the work of Christ. Now to that point in history, one's religion was basically determined by what nation you were born into. That's true to some extent today, but after Christ's death, after his resurrection, the gospel starts to go forward into the world and people from nations and tribes and tongues and languages Believe on Christ. And this was a different state of things altogether in the world. People from 
many nations are believing, setting their hope on the Jewish Messiah. How else is it possible to explain the rise of the church, the emergence of the church throughout the ancient world apart from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? How is it possible to explain this new movement that was transcending race and culture and nationality apart from the power of the risen Christ? And we shouldn't take it for granted that people believed. No one believed Noah. Very few believed Jeremiah. Very few in his own days on earth believed Jesus. But Paul could say now, through Christ, by the Spirit, he's believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. Christ was seated on the throne, exalted to the right hand of God, occupying the highest place in the universe, such that it is to him that every knee will bow and tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The church is Lord the primacy, the priority of Jesus Christ, the church's head, the God of the household. Here with this brief confession, it begins with Christ in the flesh. His glory is veiled. It ends with Christ in glory, unveiled, at the right hand of the Father. He makes himself low that he might raise us high, removing us from the realm of death, spiritual death, and our miserable state of sin. This hymn explains to us exactly what godliness is. It is Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. It's who Christ is. It's what Christ has done. Let me ask you, are you godly? Have you repented? Have you believed from your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Have you come to Christ by the power of the Spirit? Do you not just know facts about Christ, but do you treasure Christ? Do you prize Christ? Does Christ reign supreme? This is true conversion. And through faith in Christ, turning from your sin and putting your faith in Christ, you can know this. You can be godly. You can be united to Christ. Christ, the church is one and only foundation. Our suffering now with Christ is in view of the resurrection life to come. And our life together under Christ as God's household together matters. Your life in this household matters. This call to hold out the truth, to guard the truth, to protect the truth, to ensure that God's household is faithfully ordered is your calling as God's household in this place. It's our calling as God's household in the place where I live. And we can never waver in this mission because we alone as the church are called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Friends, a high view of the church is directly connected. It cannot be broken from a high view of Christ. And that is absolutely appropriate. For the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And that is the only foundation that will stand amidst all the storms and trials of this life. Let's pray.
Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church, the household of God, pillar and buttress of the truth. And we pray that you would use your word to strengthen and encourage us to be faithful in this household together, that you might get the glory that is your due. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.